tune in, tone up. Your one-stop shop for guitar, tricks, tips, techniques and advice. With me, Gary Shilliday, and my own excellent teacher, Dan Davis. In our second interview with a musician, we're really pleased to be able to introduce Chris Green of Taiketo from Atlanta, USA. If you've not already heard his stylish playing and excellent musicianship, you should definitely check it out along with his lessons on YouTube. In the interview, among other things, we talk about some of his projects, what wisdom he's gained over the years, and what it was like to go to the NAMM show earlier this year in LA. Welcome to the podcast, Chris Green. We're really pleased to have you with us. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm really, really good to be here, mate. Oh, excellent. It's been a while since we've spoken, but I'm really looking forward to introducing all our listeners to your superb style and some of your music, and I hope they'll gain a lot from what you've got to say. I hope so. I doubt it, but I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I know they will. I've got a few questions for you about your work and playing guitar. We can have a look through some of that, and then I'll link a selection in the podcast of your tunes from various outfits that you've been part of. Okay, sounds good. What have you worked on and what current projects are you working on? How can our listeners listen to your playing, teaching and the groups you play with further? Okay, well, I have a, uh, a website, chrisgreenmusic.com and on there you should have all of the links to my social media networks. On Facebook, it's Chris Green Guitarist. But on the website, you get a chance to uh, listen to my instrumental EP that I released last year. As far as other band stuff, Taiketo is probably the main band that I'm doing. So you can uh, you can find them Taiketo official on Facebook, and there's uh, there's also Taiketo.com. You can you can check out the band there too. But I got so much that I've been working on; it is almost a little overwhelming uh, to myself. So I guess we'll we'll, we'll try and chisel away at the projects I've been doing and working on uh, one by one, maybe. Okay, lovely. That's great. Yeah, because you've just started working with Delacoma as well, haven't you, I believe? I have. I uh, I started and have already finished. I was basically just in a little interim period just trying to help them out because um, they're a great band, are a great band from Australia. And, um, you know, the lead singer had had some lineup issues. It's very difficult for a band in Australia to break through because as Dell, the lead singer was saying you know you've got five major cities in Australia that are like gigging cities but they're all so far apart it's really difficult for up and coming bands to go and tour these cities in Australia you know unless you're willing to drive eight or ten hours or something so he's trying to break out of there and get more into the European market and um, luckily he had a chance to come over to America and uh, he asked me if I'd be willing to come out and play with him and I did and it was really good fun, really good, energetic, lively music, actually. If you get a chance, anyone out there listening, go and listen to them. Delacoma is uh, no surprises. It's just straight up really good balls to the wall rock and roll. Yeah, absolutely. And now's a great time to mention Furion, an incredible band which you worked with in Brighton and I had the fortune to see several times. I've got to say the output of that band was fantastic and put Disappear Again on probably because I just love that track so much. But there's so much good stuff with that you did with that band furium was you know when people ask me what album are you most proud of or what moment in your career are you most proud of it it would definitely be when we released that first furion album gravitas you know we'd had a an opportunity to go over and record in rick beato's studio and you know he'd had some major success recording shinedown's debut album and Shinedown, obviously, to, to most rock listeners now are a, are a household name. But at the time that we went over there in 2008, they were very much still trying to break into the European market. Um, but we were very aware of the American market. And the sound of Furion was really aiming towards that and not really what was going on in England. 
and we all flew over to America and, and we had the time of our lives and recorded an album that I know that every single one of us are really, really proud of from the performance to the writing, you know, because we co-wrote with the producer too. And the, the whole experience was just magical. It, it really was quite amazing. And if I could bottle that and give it as a taster to musicians to say, Leo, this is what it's like to go into one of those professional studios and do it the way that you dream it's done. I would, because it was just wonderful, really wonderful. And I'm extremely... It's like a million dollars, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, it was, it's, yeah, it's awesome. I loved it. And you would have loved it. The amp selection in there was absolutely ridiculous. There was a wall of amps. Yeah, one of Rick's techniques for recording was to take two amps at a time and record them each side. So effectively, my first, you know, I'd do two takes of rhythms and save the left hand side. We'd have a, like a Marshall JCN 2000 and like a modded um, Boogie Rectifier. And that would be recording at the same time. So the mixture of those two amps would be on the left side and then we'd go over to the right and we'd have say like a Sovtech MiG 100 and like a modded JCM 800. And, and so it was like a mixture of four incredibly good amps. And we experimented and came up with that whole wall of guitar sound, which was, which was great. You would have loved it. Yeah, it's, it's so good. I'll, I'll be linking it on and the listeners will be sure to love it. Here's Furion's Disappear Again. I'll play you the start and then Chris Green's solo. Rick Beata as well I've seen I've watched a few of his guitar tuition videos and they're just superb too so you know I recommend everyone listening to go and check those out and indeed your own at eMusic Workshop yeah we did we did the eMusic Workshop stuff together and that was really Rick's uh, introduction to him getting into the online presence since then he now has his own YouTube channel and I do recommend that anyone out there that's interested in more advanced music theory go and check his stuff out because he he taught at the new york conservatory he actually turned down a job teaching at berkeley when it comes to jazz theory improvisation and the real complex parts of music theory he is an absolute know-it-all about it but he's got a great way of explaining it i've never met anyone that has been so knowledgeable of music theory you know, because you forget, music theory, there's an end to it. You can know all of music theory. It's not like open to interpretation. There's a, a certain amount of information, and that's all of it. How you interpret it is a completely different matter. That's the infinite bit, yeah? <laughs> yeah, but he really is one of those guys that just has a complete command of, um, of that side of music, the theoretical side. Hey, not a bad player either when you have a look. <laughs> oh, he's superb. Yeah, and that leads us nicely into, because our podcast is for people picking up the guitar and pushing their guitar playing a little bit further. And so I'm going to ask you a load of questions about, about the guitar, if that's, if that's all right with you. Absolutely. What first got you into playing the guitar? I mean, I suspect this came from your dad, the awesome Dave Green. But do you remember when you first started playing for real? When did you get your first guitar? What was it? How did you find it at first? loads of questions there i know <laughs> no 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 it's good no i do remember it and i don't usually get a chance to talk about this side of it but yeah my dad was a, a huge influence in terms of just introducing me to being around live music but my dad wasn't a guitar player he was a, he was a bass player and he was a lefty as well but there was a right hand of acoustic in the house which i think was my mum's the make was texan i'm sure it was one of a million bizarre brands that were knocking out half decent acoustics at the time but I used to sneak into my dad's study where it was and I would just play around with it and I distinctly remember not being able to actually comprehend what you had to do with the fretboard hand but I would just strum the strings and just like slowly do them quieter and then harder and literally trying to make my own songs up from just playing open strings which I'm sure sounded 
horrendous to anybody that was around at the time. <laughs> but eventually it worked. He came in, he was like, oh man, look, if you're going to do this, let me at least show you a few chords. So I imagine it wasn't sounding that good. He showed me a few chords and I was just like a sponge for it. I absolutely loved it. And he ended up getting, uh, he was doing like a, a, a pub duo as one of the many things that he was doing at the time. And he got the guitar player, Steve Hawkins, who was in his duo to actually start teaching me Shadows numbers. So my first real guitar hero was Hank Marvin. And I learned like a large amount of their catalogue really before even listening to any other kind of music that was guitar orientated. I was used to my dad being, his bands were in, in the house a lot. They'd rehearse live in the house and he was in Cliff Richards band and he was on TV on Channel 4 twice a week with this show called Unforgettable. So it was totally normal for me to see him on TV or being played. It was completely normal. It, it wasn't a big deal at all. And so I doubt that would lead into when I got my first guitar because it was quite embarrassing really because it was a place called Moonlight Music in Burgess Hill at the top of Junction Road and I went in and I was just like I'll take whatever the cheapest guitar is just wanted a guitar and it was like a black encore it cost about 40 quid at the time which was quite a lot of money in whatever it would have been 1985 and I, I really really played the death out of that you know trying to play my shadows numbers and stuff and I really really just soaked it up and I'd sit for hours and hours and hours just trying to get the real staccato picking parts in Apache yeah it's a great tune isn't it breaking moment was that my dad's friends from when he played in Cliff Richards band were in town in the Shadows band. Cliff Hall and Griff who were the keyboard player and bass player in the Shadows they invited Steve my dad's friend who was teaching me and me to go down to the Brighton Centre and I went backstage and sat down with Hank Marvin <laughs> and got a chance to chat to him wow. and he showed me like a couple of things on the guitar and and it was, you know, of course, now, you know, now, I mean, we have people like John Petrucci and Guthrie Govan, and I, and I know that, you know, by comparison, Hank Marvin really is, <laughs> you know, Stone nowhere age. near that kind of, <laughs> yeah, I know, just nowhere near, but, but a very innovative guitar player, nonetheless. Yeah. And the next day, I took my black encore and I went back to Moonlight Music and I said, I want a red strap. And he said, well, they're about like a thousand pounds. I was like, well, I want one that just looks like it then. And so he had this thing called a Marlin Sidewinder. And it looked exactly like the Red Stratocaster to me. You know, I'm sure it was just horrific, cheap Korean or whatever Asian parts. But the funniest part about it is that he said, you know what you're looking for? And I picked up the guitar and I looked down the neck and I said, well, I was chatting to Hank Marvin last night and he said that I should definitely be checking out to see if there's a bow in the neck or anything. And this guy was looking at me like, who the fuck is this little kid? Like, what's he talking at? You know. <laughs> How old are you at the time? As I well? was 12. Right, okay, brilliant. <laughs> so he's probably thinking, who's this little shit banging on that he's friends with Hank Marvin? And I'm to the bottom, but it was true. I had the night before I was with him and he was like, Chris, when you're checking out for a new guitar, I always lift it up and have a look down the neck and, now make sure everything's working your pickups and this guy must have thought get out of here mate he sold me the guitar and couldn't kick me out of the shop quick enough <laughs> I loved that guitar and that was my guitar all the way up until I got into rock music when I was um, 14 or something That's but inter great. interestingly enough I can remember the first guitar solo 
that made me think I have to play like that. Yeah. And believe it or not, it was an old 80s band called Aztec Camera. And they had a song called uh, Somewhere in My Heart. Now, this was just like 80s pop music at the time. You know, it was that and Level 42 and, all, you know, that, those kind of bands. But there was this ripping guitar solo in the middle of it. And I remember just thinking, what's that? That's absolutely amazing. And then I think maybe the next year or something, you know, I, I was I was gravitating to these bands like Starship and yeah. Bon Jovi and Europe, and I didn't know what it was, but there was just this sound, the sound of that like crunchy, distorted guitar sound and the wailing guitar sound. It was it was really quite hypnotic to me. Yeah, wonderful tone, you know, those... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, and it solidified when my sister first played Appetite for Destruction at home. And the moment I heard that, like, tearing out of her speakers in her bedroom, I was like, I don't know what that is, but that's exactly what I want to be able to play. <laughs> and that ultimately was the day that I started growing my hair. I see you're playing a Les Paul in Delacoma, aren't you? Is it Delacoma you're playing a Les Paul in? Yeah, I did. I play, I play a Les Paul. I take out different guitars all the time just to give them a little bit of airtime. <laughs> What guitars and amplifiers do you choose for certain songs and gigs and which are the go-tos? Oh man, I mean the the reason I took the Les Paul out with Delacoma was because I'd bought this lovely Les Paul Classic, they're Gibson's biggest secret really because they're extremely affordable Les Pauls and if you get the models from around 2005, they had these awesome pickups the 496 r 500t pickups and they're, they're wonderful ceramic pickups made by gibson and they sound incredible and for fifteen hundred dollars you can pick up one of these things and yeah. and they're great and I, I got this lovely honeyburst one and i was like you know what i could take out and any one of the 150 or whatever guitars that i own now which i know is a whole different story but i just took it out because i wanted to um you know try it out turns out there was actually a little top endy for my liking but yeah okay i enjoy playing it nonetheless but my go-to is my uh, prs guitar so i have three i bought another prs actually since the last week um so i've got a uh, prs all of them are 20th anniversary models one of them's a custom 2410 top in whale blue that's a maple top and a mahogany back makes it light oh, but it's also quite bright as well and the other two are almost identical. They are the standard 24 20th anniversaries in like a matte finish. It's called charcoal um, black. And I sound like Nigel Tufnell from Spinal Tap now, don't I? <laughs> yeah, you do a bit. Um, you, that's good though. 150 but, guitars. But, I'm still thinking about that. <laughs> I, I know, I know. And I do actually have a couple with the old tagger still on them as well, just oh, like amazing. Nigel. Um, so but these, these ones are wonderful. They're so, they're so great for acrobatic stuff. And, you know, when I go out and I'm playing in Taiketo or if I'm doing anything progressive, Furion, my instrumental stuff, Taiketo, I tend to play those because I can really get up around the 24th fret with a lot of ease. And they're very versatile guitars. When you pick up a Les Paul and play it, it pretty much has its own sound. So does a Stratocaster, so does an SG. But the PRS is like a real chameleon of a guitar and I can really get any one of those super strat tones or I can hit the coil, tap it and um, make it, to those listening that don't understand what that means, that means you split the humbucker, you're able to flick a switch that splits the humbucker down to one so it gives you more of a uh, Fender Stratocaster sound. So I I can get like loads and loads of different sounds from one guitar.
Yeah, I don't have the coil tap on my 30th anniversary one, but it's a lovely machine. <laughs> it's just a great tool, isn't it? It's just such a great tool. They're amazing. I mean, they're very, very well-built guitars, and that probably reflects in the price. I mean, I, I am one of those people that I'm like, look, it's wood and some electronics and some metal bits, and you're charging $7,000 for it. So I'm not entirely sure that that's justified, but I will say that I love playing my guitar. Yeah. But... I have a $400 Ibanez, and I also love playing that. Yeah, fair enough. And it's all strings and frets. <laughs> In your playing and your journey to become the player you are today, thinking back to when you first picked up that red Stratocaster-like guitar. Mm -hmm. What do you wish you'd done more of when starting out and early in your learning? Were there things that would have sped up the learning process, fast-track your skills? And I think that there are a lot of people out there that seem to be scared of theory. And I remember listening to your interview the other day. It was with your, uh, your guitar teacher, right? Yeah, with Dan. Yeah, Dan Davis. Yeah, and Dan was saying, you know, that a lot of people are very scared of theory and they find it intimidating. And I have totally found that with people as well. There's this fear of knowledge or I think if they're more honest with themselves, the reason why people don't like the idea of theory is that if they're around someone that knows theory, it makes them feel a little silly that they don't understand it or speak the language properly. Yeah. And this shouldn't be like that. You really should just embrace it from very early on because even if you don't use all of it, it's, it's literally a language between musicians and it can, it can really just get you out of some incredibly mundane situations if you're if you're rehearsing um and you know you're like hey what are you playing over there and it's like oh, i'm just playing a d major seven and everybody in the band if they understand the theory is going to understand what notes you're playing and what they should be playing what not be playing and what key you might be playing in yeah. and it just breaks down a lot of barriers and even though there are a lot of players out there that have never known any theory that are wonderful famous players that's fine too but not everybody is that lucky to have that kind of ear and that natural talent. So I would say that I would have embraced music theory earlier. And most importantly, I would have got out and played much more live at an earlier age. Yeah, that's a really good Just point. to build up that confidence. Because I taught so many students and they're just coming into this age of hey i'm going to do my first gig with my band and, and they get stuck in this horrible rut of well we're not ready to gig let's write a few more songs let's write a few more songs and they end up with a catalog of 30 songs and they don't want to play a show and ultimately they end up getting a gig maybe down at the local village hall you know wherever it is that their first gig would be and they all stand completely still on stage because they're petrified and ultimately the reason people get petrified is one reason. It's they're frightened of making mistakes. And I can, I can categorically tell you right now, everybody, all musicians, from the kid that's about to play his first punk show at 13 years old, all the way up to Steve Vai, John Petrucci, Guthrie Govan, there are always mistakes in there. It's just part of being human and it's actually the better part of what we are. It adds something that isn't so clinical. So you have to embrace the fact, yes, I'm going to make mistakes, but you know what? Everybody makes mistakes. So I may as well enjoy myself and look like I'm enjoying myself. Go out and, and make those and, mistakes, you know? Yeah, because who cares, man? Like when someone goes to see you live, they have memories like a goldfish. If you make a mistake, they've forgotten about it within 30 seconds of the song. You know, and they're into the next thing that you're playing. Who cares? Yeah. We all make mistakes. And I made a decision in my 20s that I was going to start making a much bigger effort of my stage performance and stop worrying so much about whether I was going to hit every single note. Because when I go and see a show, I want to get something I don't get from the CD or the album. I want, to, I want to be entertained. I want to see a performance. I want to be, feel like I'm drawn in to something. You know, it's, it's show business. You know, you have to put a show on. And I have to say, Dream Theater are one of my favorite bands. And they were also maybe one of the most sterile live performances at times that I'd ever seen. Right. Because yeah. how can you run around when you're playing that kind of stuff? And at the other end of it, I remember seeing Skid Row in 1991 
and thinking it was the most amazing live performance I'd ever seen. listening back to a, a bootleg of the live album and hearing just how horrendous some of the mistakes were. But I didn't recognise them at the time. I was just so caught in the blown moment. Blown away, isn't it, by stuff that, like that? Yeah, just blown away. I didn't realise. So long and short of it, any advice I would have for any new players is, you know, embrace music theory because it's going to help you. And it doesn't hurt, like, knowing it. If you really want to be a great guitar player or a great musician, why would you just not want to know everything there is to know about that instrument and what surrounds it? And get out and play live, make mistakes, have fun, because if you're not having fun, music is a labor of love. Not a lot of us have the opportunity to earn a good living out of it, or even a living at all. So it's a labor of love. And if you're not loving the labor, then there is no point in doing it whatsoever. Well said. Where do you draw your motivation and inspiration from? I guess it covers some of that already, but I mean, I've been like motivated and inspired. I've had a couple of amazing teachers, yourself and Dan. You know, I've got a couple of really good teachers there and that can be quite inspiring in itself. I remember you saying one thing to me when you were teaching me, which was, don't think that anyone gets to where I am without a lot of work. That made me go, I wonder if I can, how much work I can put in. And the truth is, is you need a lot of time, but that's quite an inspiration, isn't it? To know that hard work will pay off. And I wonder where you get your motivation and inspiration from now and over your learning. Well, earlier on, when I went to Guitar Institute in London, it was all about the, the, the teachers and the people around me and just wanting, you know... It, not feeling intimidated, but feeling inspired. And there's two ways. Guitarists can be just terrible for this, that seeing someone that's really good or a lot better than they feel they are and just completely closing down and saying, mm. that's rubbish or I don't want to know about that. That's not my kind of thing. And kind of turning their, turning their nose up at it because they're intimidated and in the back of their mind, maybe thinking, I wish I could be that good. This is where you would get this whole age-old argument about feel versus technicality you know and for the most part in my experience the most people that I have heard say yeah but where's the feel are the people that don't have the chops to be able to play what that person was doing and there is a coexistence of uh, technicality and feel I know because I feel that it's the one thing that I did accomplish in my playing was making sure that you had really good phrasing and note choice. And when you're going to play fast, it's just at the right time and where the song demands it. But I would much rather have the capability of being able to do that than not. And I think it's a shame, really, that people kind of lump it into, well, you've either got feel or you've got a technical prowess. You know, it's, it's, and it's, it's just not true. Um, you have to respect players that have put all of those hours in, you know, respect what you're just saying. It does take a lot of hours to gather that kind of technique, you know, to get your alternate picking or sweet picking or legato, and it's over and over and over again. But at some point, it does become like riding a bike, where, like, you can maybe not play the guitar for a week, pick it back up, and after an hour or so, you're back to where you were again, you know, and it will start becoming second nature and I watched all of those players when I was younger my teachers I watched you know listen to Paul Gilbert Nuno Betancourt Andy Timmons John Petrucci uh, Dave Kilminster Sean Baxter those two were guitar teachers of mine at Guitar Institute and I just looked at them and thought I'm going to be like that I want to be like that if it means I've got to sit in my bedroom and play the same shit over and over again until it's second nature then that's exactly what I'm going to do and it's exactly what I did do. And even now, I still look at players and think, yep, I still need to get my shit together a little. You know, there's, um, it's, it, it never stops. And it shouldn't ever stop. You should always be wanting to be better, I think, anyway. Who's that in particular? Which players do you look at now and 
inspire you to become to look at other stuff and you know even push your skills further um who are the main guys I mean, it's tough. We have a lot a lot of great new players out there, but I see a very, very kind of typical new style out there with a lot of new lead guitar players. You know, there's a lot of really cool, technical, progressive, instrumental music, which is great. It's really up my street. But a lot of them tend to be going much more towards the Guthrie Govan side of the technicality, like a lot of um, three-note-per-string octave tapping runs where it just sounds so incredibly technical, you know, that yeah. when those people say, hey, um, people that play really fast, they just got no feel. And unfortunately, there are some of those players that will bolster the argument for that person because they don't think about the breaks in the music and vibrato and and how to actually utilize all of those techniques and put them into one, you know. So as far as new players, I follow a lot of them, but there's none that really, really turn me on. I tend to look backwards yeah, a little more towards players. And I'm going to see Eric Johnson actually in a couple of weeks. I'm looking forward to that. He's going to be playing. Oh, man. Yeah, he's going to be playing. <laughs> That's so, so sweet. <laughs> I know. And he's going to be playing the whole of uh, the Avia Musicom album, which um, is the album that, Cliffs of Dover was the first track of, so superb album. And I'm like, like the total antisocial person I am. I literally just bought one ticket and I'm going on my own, you know, because <laughs> it's, it's one of those gigs that I don't want to sit and talk to anyone and I just want to sit and watch it and just be in awe. But in, in terms of people that I know that I have worked with and am friends with that probably deserve shout outs that aren't even famous players, you've got Jamie Hunt of One Machine. He teaches at BIM in Bristol. And um, I'm looking at maybe doing a little bit of work with him on some really cool instrumental stuff. Yeah. Chris Webb, who played in Fury, actually, after I left. Phenomenal player as well. I've got to tell you, I've got to give a shout out to Harry, who plays in uh, a band called Caned. They're a Welsh band, seven-piece band, three sisters are the singers. And it's kind of like, I guess it's like a technical version of Evanescence. Um and the three sisters are all singing at the same time in the harmony. Oh, so it's, it's wonderful. I love yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I know. And they came out and um, they supported Taiketa on the last tour. And, you know, Harry's a, he's a pretty monster player. I'm pretty sure. He went out and played in Key Marcello's band as well, actually. Remember Key Marcello, who was in Europe? Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. He was on the Prisoners in Paradise album. And he great young player, man. I mean... Really good chops. There's no way I had those kind of chops at, at that age. Just some wonderful, wonderful players out there that are just, you know, trying to make their way in the industry that, to be honest, you would be so surprised if you heard them. You'd be thinking, why are these, why are these guys not famous? Because, you know, There's when they stand... There's a lot of people like that, to, isn't there? <laughs> to be honest. I know. Yeah. I know. And, I mean, and, 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 and bear in mind, you know, when we talk about technical side of things and guitar players you know who am i to turn around and say that john petrucci is a better guitar player than eric clapton you know i'm not a fan of eric clapton's playing it's just really not my bag because my first entrance into the lead guitar arena was listening to paul gilbert and petrucci and and, and people like that and so yeah. you know when you when you when you then go back you're like oh it's kind of like a much slower version of all this stuff that I like. Yeah. <laughs> no. So, so I, I listen to that for what I want to get out of it. And yeah, cool. Pink Floyd is one of Pink Floyd's one of my favorite bands. Most people don't even know this. When I'm on the road, I listen to Pink Floyd at least. I probably listen to a Pink Floyd album at least three times a day while I'm on the road. Well, his phrasing and his tone and everything about and the music is wonderful. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. What are your favourite you know, albums? I know it's not. Uh, Medal and yeah. Wish You Were Here are my two favourite albums. All right, they're, t- they're two of my top, without shadow of a doubt. I love Medal. It's got that really long track yeah. on it, hasn't it, with all the whale song type Echoes. Stuff. 
that's probably my favorite uh, song of all time by Pink Floyd and you know and for, for Pink Floyd that time was it was a groundbreaking time for them I think in their in their sound movement moving forwards towards you know what they were going to be more famously known as yeah yeah totally agreed sonically I'm still reeling from your 150 guitars and I've got a question on that then okay okay what's your desert island guitar e.g. Oh, your house is burning down just one of them family are safe Sullivan and uh, Amanda is safe. Just one guitar. Which do you take? Well, you know the answer is I'm probably going to end up burning inside my house, like trying to sit and decide which one <laughs> I take out. Um, I don't know. The answer is I'll probably run out, like tripping over trying to grab about six guitars. Let me have a look around the studio at the moment. Hang on, let me have a look. <laughs> oh man, um, you got you got a few with quite a lot of sentimental value, as opposed to sort of the ones you play as well. I guess. Yeah, you? I mean, there's there's too much to consider. I mean, how quickly is the house burning down here? Is it is it like just <laughs> <laughs> one guitar, Chris? Just one. And I know you've got loads everywhere else as okay, well. well which you know count. what the the, the the others? Do you know what it'll be my? It, it's going to be my dad's um, uh, Fender P bass. Because it's the it's the only guitar that I can't replace. Yeah. But I'm look. I've got yeah, to be thought, honest. I'm looking. I'm be. looking at my Gibson 225 TD, which sits right above me in the studio because it's uh, it's my favourite hollow body guitar, and I would probably throw that out the window, hoping it would make it, and then grab <laughs> my dad's bass. <laughs> Fair play. Yeah. Good answer. And then just try and grab and drag one with you as well as grab a PRS yeah, on the yeah. way as well or something. You kind of looked at this a bit earlier. I think what you think the single best piece of advice for aspiring players, you talked about them playing live and you talked about them learning music theory. Is there anything else you'd you'd give as advice or? Yeah, um, be open to all kinds of players and all kinds of music because you'll be surprised where you can pick out influences and ideas from. Some of the core progressions in the Furia material, I totally got from watching Star Trek movies. You know, they <laughs> Go had, on. Because like that kind of really grandiose classical movements, you know, they translate so well into rock music. So just be open to everything. Yeah. I mean, you may not like jazz, but, you know, saxophone licks are so good on the guitar as well because they, you know, the sax is able to bend a note, you know, so you can, you can really translate that stuff onto guitar. Yeah, you know, just 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 soak it all in. All of it's all of it's may not be your yeah. taste, but there's some really interesting stuff where you don't expect it. And I'm telling you, man, I have after decades of playing, I've sat down with people that have been students of mine and looked at something they've done and gone, I never even thought about doing that. This could be a 13 year old right. kid, and that's the beauty of that. The beauty about you know instrumentation is that. You know, everyone's mind is so unique, they interpret the instrument in a completely different way. Listen to all these players and soak it up and learn songs and ultimately use all of those different influences to put them together to find your own tone. And that, your, your sound and your tone is the holy grail for guitar players. It's like if you can find, okay, I'll, I'll simplify this entire thing. My one piece of advice is find your own voice amongst the masses. So find your own sound so that if someone listened to a solo or a track, they'd be on that, that's blah, blah, blah. That's Gary. I can tell. I can just tell by his note choice and his sound. Yeah. You know, and that ultimately, I, I can't think of anything more that any guitar player would want, apart from maybe being paid a few million dollars for headlining download, <laughs> but, you know. Well, I think I think someone recognised one of yours when you're doing some session work. Was it on on another interview? It was, or yeah, something? yeah, it was, yeah, it was, and it was, it was, it, that was probably the biggest compliment I'd ever received. Is that he turned around to me and he said, "Hey, man, I got this album the other day, and this guy is playing a solo on the last track on the album, <laughs> and I swear to God, I swear to God that he's nicking your licks." And I was like, "Cheeky bastard! All right, I'll go and check it out. <laughs> what album is it?" And he said, it's the uh, Harry Hess album. Harry Hess is the lead singer of this band called um, Harem Scarum. And I was like, dude, no, that is me. I played a session That's on That's amazing, album. isn't it? That's brilliant. And he was like, what? And I was, yeah, and I thought, that, that that's great. I mean, that to me, that was done. I'm like, I've done it. Someone has basically been able to think, he's got his own sound. And and, and I always strive to do that. So, so 
any listeners out there, you know, try and do the same. There's a lot of players out there trying to sound the same, and you don't have to be as fast, or you don't, you know, have to be as technical, but just find something that screams, this is me. Yeah. Link, linked in with that, have you got advice for people interested in a career in music? I'm pretty sure most of them say don't do it. <laughs> I think so. I think uh, that's that was Dan's answer. I'm telling you something, man. Money comes and goes. I've had times in my life where I have had really nothing. I mean, man, when we were hanging out, I was living in a bedroom above the Druid's Arms in Brighton, opposite the level. Great pub. It's great if unless you have to live above the <laughs> pub and it's open till four in the morning. Yeah. But I remember, I remember that point and having nothing. And I also remember having lots of money. And I live a, a pretty comfortable lifestyle now. And I have lots of guitars and all of this, uh, you know, kind of stuff. But ultimately, music is such a gift. Yeah. Just go for it. Because whether you make money or not out of it, you're going to come out with the best stories. You're going to have some amazing times. You're going to see some amazing places. And even if you don't end up rich or you don't end up making any money out of it, so long as you can turn around at the end of it and say, you know what, man, I gave it everything. It may not have been enough and I may not have carved out the career I wanted to, but there's so much magic involved in it. You know, just and people who aren't musicians just don't understand the sheer brilliance of, of, of being able to stand up on a stage and have people watch and listen to something that you've created and to see it in their eyes that they're absolutely loving it and for people to tell you that what you've done and created has changed their lives. Yeah. And no, there's not a lot not a lot of people and not a lot of um, career paths that offer that. And it may not pay you, but I'm telling you something, man, when we're all on our deathbeds and we've all got nothing left apart from what we came into the world with, those kind of memories, the money's going to mean nothing to you. You know, you might have made a bunch of money being a lawyer and blown it and had some great holidays. But I'm telling you, man, I wouldn't change it for I wouldn't change it for the world. I could have chosen some much better career paths that would have given me a lot better money. And I'm sure a lot of parents, I'm, you know, I'm a parent and I will probably tell my son, oh, yeah, go to college, go to university. Hmm. Uh, that's not true. I'll probably, I'll probably tell him to just do whatever yeah. he wants, <laughs> but, you know, just follow your dreams, which is... Uh, well, I probably will do. But there are a lot of parents that want that for their kids. They just want them to have this misguided um, view of stability, which is nine to five job, make sure you can pay your mortgage. And there's just not enough, there's not enough dreamers out there. There's not enough people that are just like, yeah, I know, man, but I just want to do this. And I can't explain why. And I want to take a chance and do it. And every time that we sit down and we watch a movie or we put a CD on, you're listening and watching dreamers, people that had the balls to just turn around and say, do you know what? I'm going to give this a go. I'm just going to go for it. So my advice to anyone out there would be on that. I know that most people will say, hedge your bets and go for a good job. But I think it's the most magical thing that you can be is being a performing musician. So just go for it. Dan said something similar, actually, to be fair to him. He said something along the lines of, if music hasn't got a big hold on you, don't do it. But if it's got a big hold on you, there's nothing else you can do. No, that's very true. And I, be I believe that for some people, including myself, that it chooses you. And as, you know, hippie as that sounds, it just is the way it is. And, you know, same with when you, you know, love a partner. You can't really explain to someone why it is that you love them. You just do. And... And that's how it is with music too. Yeah. I, I mean, if you took my hearing away from me, I don't know how much longer I'll be able to go on, man. You know, I mean, because like, <laughs> music is everything. When I wake up, when I go to sleep, it, it's just, it's, it's part of my everyday. Yeah, it's, a, it's an important part of my life, shall we say. I, I know what you mean. It's more than well, just you know playing. Too. You, know? you know, Gary. Yeah. You know, because like you're a great guitar player and you walk the fine line because I know that you have a, a job that you do, you teach, yeah, not easy. But you're also good enough on the instrument that if you wanted to, you could just call it a day and bugger off and go and be a musician. You uh, you probably wouldn't be the most popular person in terms of uh, being a husband and a father <laughs> <laughs> and a mortgage player. But 
yeah, you could still do it. And there's people out there I know that up to 40 years old have thought, I've had enough of this, quit their job and just started playing in a covers band or something. And that's awesome. Yeah. I think it's great. It's yeah. great there's people willing, willing to do that. You Quite know? exciting. What do you think guitarists do well that other musicians aren't as good at? And what weaknesses do you think that guitar players have over other musicians? I think guitar players, hands down, are able to procrastinate more than <laughs> any other musician. Uh, they're able to judge better than other people. They're maybe the most hypocritical of all musicians. They, I'm trying to think of anything good. Uh, <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah. Is there anything good I, in there? <laughs> I, you know, you know what? I think out of all of the bands that I've been in. I think they're musically the most creative as a whole. Singers I see much more as like tortured souls. Yeah. You know, which is why lyrics is their is, is, is their life. You know, I know a lot of singer-songwriters, they play music too, but I see them much more as like tortured souls. Guitar players I, I see as <laughs> cynical. They're much more like, oh, I, could, I can probably do that better than that. And also very much like, no, even if they like in the studio, do like a hundred takes of a solo no it can be better no it can be better no it can be better i think they're very much that kind of character perfectionists maybe yeah yeah which can be almost good and bad can't it i guess bass players i'd say are probably greatest at being able to drain their um their partner's bank accounts <laughs> and i would say drummers are, are, are good at being able to hit things on and off the stage yeah yeah they de definitely are my stepdad's a drummer yeah, good at both of those things. Honourable mentions, keyboard players. I'm not sure what you're good at yet, but I uh, I endeavour to find out what that is. <laughs> good at playing an instrument where it's laid out incredibly sensibly. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe the, maybe the keyboard players are like the uh, you know the the custard of music, where like you know you pour them on top of the thing and they just fill in the gaps, soak into the gaps and fill the whole thing up a bit. You know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the custard. Dave Fensom, if he's listening, will love that. <laughs> Oh, sorry, yeah, sorry Dave. about that, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> what are your thoughts about songwriting? You've released your own solo album. What works for you? How do you go about finishing and arranging your songs? Oh, man. I mean, I've experienced so many different types of songwriting with different songwriters that I know what my favourite way of doing it is, and that would be where I write all the music myself I'm very meticulous about programming drums and I've probably spent more money on drum software than any other kind of software in my studio. And I love being able to really orchestrate the music and then hand it over to the singer and him do his stuff. That's why Furion worked incredibly well. You know, Matt right. was just great at being able to take what I created and be able to go, right, this is now what I'm going to put over the top of it to make this sound great. Yeah. He's a great singer, Matt Mitchell is. Yeah, he's just, I mean, he's a, a rock star that really never reached the levels that he deserved. Ultimately, he should have been, you know, up there with David Coverdale, John Bon Jovi, Brian Adams, all those kind of things, you know. But there were, but the word deserve doesn't uh, exist in the musician dictionary. <laughs> Roll of the dice. <laughs> At other times, there's extremely frustrating ways of writing, and that, to me, personally, is in the rehearsal studio, because when you're jamming, you can have incredibly creative moments and they can become extremely stagnant very, very quickly. You'll overplay an idea and then you can't find the next part and then people just start getting frustrated and then people just start suggesting stuff for the sake of suggesting things. And with a lot of musicians, there's this involvement issue where it's like, well, I don't feel like I've put enough input in yet, so I'm just going to say, why don't we change this bit? And it's hard to work out whether, well, are you changing that for the sake of changing it? Or are you changing it because you actually think the song deserves it? And I, I personally can't stand being in those situations because I'm like, look, is this a million dollar choice? Uh, if we change the first chord in that pre-chorus, is that going to be the difference between us getting to number one and not? And if the answer is no, then please, yeah. let's just move on. <laughs> you know, I'm very matter of fact about that stuff. When we wrote the last Taikato album, it was a, oh my gosh, it was a ridiculously intense experience. I'd send the riff to the drummer. The drummer would send his drum tracks back to me, what he played over my riffs. Right. 
he would have changed the feel slightly so I didn't have to re-record my guitars over that. Then he'd have more suggestions and the songs would get changed slightly and then we'd send it to the singer and he'd change the arrangements. He wanted to put the vocals over the top and it was it was just the most, even though what came out of it was a great album, the level of micromanagement in there was so intense that it unfortunately detracted for me from the whole experience and just it, it left me a little cold after the album was released because when I listened to the album all I could think of was oh yeah this is that song that we had to change the chorus around 50 times that's a little bit of a curse of musicians as well when yeah. you're recording you go through the mixing process you have to listen to about 40 different versions of the same song until it's right and after you do that you're kind of a little sick of uh, hearing it don't ever want to hear it again <laughs> you're overanalyzed and exactly every- and I, I generally have to wait a good six months maybe a year before i can go back and listen to the album and enjoy it as just a body of work i mean that's that's all amazing stuff because i mean i've got a song at the moment that i just can't finish it and it's kind of like that you sit down you try and write some lyrics you're not happy with it get annoyed you put it down and finishing it is very difficult (laughs) yeah it's a curse i wonder how many uh famous artists from the past have got half finished paintings you know for me when i get stuck i think to myself right why don't i try this i'm just gonna forget about the rest of that song i'm just gonna write a bunch of different bits and we'll see if we can frankenstein them together you know and see if that works and and there's been times where it has worked and i've just worked on a piece of music like a just like a story and i'm like okay i got to the end of chaps two today now i'm just gonna next day listen to the end of chaps two and then i'll be like oh why don't we go in this direction and that's what a lot more of my progressive music is is like it's much more storyboard progressive where there's not really any repeating sections yeah that's good advice but if you want to write a hit song just keep it simple you know i mean really you don't have to think too much about it rick said to me once when i was like oh man i want to do this but it's just it's just like a you know g d and c thing and it's been done so many times before and he said to me, never underestimate the power of predictability. Because when a listener, subconsciously, listeners, when they're listening to music, they kind of want to know what's coming next. There's a familiarity. There's a good feeling that it feels familiar already, even if it's not something you know. It's why the last 20 country number ones have probably sounded almost identical. Like you could sit them on top of each other. There's a YouTube thing where someone had taken like five country hits put them on top of each other and they were literally the same key the same (laughs) chords the same melodies all of this kind of stuff you know because it's a formula that they thought worked so um sometimes it doesn't have to be complicated and often we overthink things you know maybe sometimes simple is is best yeah well, I was quite jealous to hear this, actually. You've just come back from Nam, haven't you? Yes. <laughs> yes. Good old Nam. Uh, 2018, uh, over in LA. Yep. Um, what was the most exciting thing you saw or heard there? How was how was it being there? Ooh. Who did you see playing or get chatting with? What's it like to be at the hub of all things guitar? It is. Um, I, it must be great. I can't, <laughs> even, I can't even try to explain to someone what nam is like when i'm getting a you know when i'm going from my hotel to the exhibition center and you know the taxi driver's like so what's what's going on here what is this thing and i'm like dude i don't even know what to tell you Um, (laughs) let me try and think how can i try and quantify what is nam it is it's a music convention that is not open to the general public it's only open to vendors and to people involved in the industry I still, at this point, have no idea how the vendors even make any money. All I know is that the biggest companies in the world go there to showcase their most recent products. And I guess, you know, buyers, vendors come in, they're like, okay, maybe they take orders and stuff. But, you know, if you go and see like Fender's exhibit, you're just thinking, man, I don't know how much money you paid to be here, but I'm pretty sure that you're not going to make this money back. I don't know. It kind of seems more like a pissing show, but it is so overwhelming, Gary. Like if if you try and picture like a bunch of aircraft hangars stuck next to each other. Oh, right. Yeah. 
uh, like four different halls and on top of those halls there is tall as an aircraft hangar you then have two more levels on top of that with every single drum company amp company guitar bass keyboards headphones software companies decks for djs everything that you can possibly think of that is related to music there are vendors here and as you're walking through it's like a hundred different drummers playing at the same time and then you'll walk into the next tour and it's five <laughs> an assault on the senses oh my god yeah it's just you know 500 guitar players all trying to play as many notes as they can and it's so overwhelming but amazing luckily now they've got an app on the phone so you can actually just like hit i want to go here and here i am and it gives you a route because you're basically lost in a sea of it's like disneyland for musicians it's yeah. overwhelming to the senses. I came up with the best solution this year. I bought myself some nice uh, Beats by Dre headphones and I just put those on and my sunglasses on and I, I've knocked together an 80s feel-good playlist, you know, like uh, <laughs> Level 42, Tears for Fears, Aztec Camera, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And I basically just walked around listening to that with my sunglasses on. Very cool. <laughs> and, and I was just in my own world, you know, and if I saw something that I had liked or if I had to do... um I was basically doing videos for the Guitar Guru Network, uh, which is a, a Facebook site. You guys should look it up if you want. The Guitar Guru Network is an amazing, amazing place. I'm, I help with the admin of that thing. There's a lot of really cool, a lot of really, yeah, a lot of really cool people in there. The famous people that are under different names and uh, people that build guitars. And basically, you can apply to be a member, and me and Keith can let you in. You can buy some awesome gear in there that's not even out yet, like. When the new um, EVH fenders came out, we demoed those and they only went out on that site first. So it's cool. If you look it up, Guitar Guru Network on Facebook. Right. But I shoot videos for them, you know. So at NAM, basically, I was going up and, and speaking to the new vendors. What have you got on offer? And what I thought was probably the best thing is this company called Synergy basically um, bought out Rand. Do you remember Randall, the, uh, the company, Randall, the amp company? I feel I should. Dimebag Darrell was a big Randall player, you know. And years ago, they came out with this uh, model called RM100. So if you picture like a 100-watt head yeah, yeah. that has three channels, like, like the Laney that you used to have, right? But if you imagine each one of those channels is a unit that you can pull out of the amp and put a different one in there oh, if you wow. want. So they kind of, yes, they kind of look like, uh, like hard drives, but the front of it, like an amp. Yeah. You know, it's got gain, volume, EQ, and they're about sort of, I don't know, about like eight inches wide by a couple of inches, like a half unit rack mount. And you get three of them in an amp. And Synergy basically bought the technology for modeling all of these amps, like Diesel, Angle, Marshall. And, and they've got all of these different units that you can literally just go, okay, do you know what? I want to take out an angle and a plexi and I want to take out a diesel. Yeah. And you go bang, 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 put those three in there and you've got all those amps and it's the exact circuitry that's in those amplifiers. So you're literally getting for under a thousand. Not modeled like the Kempers or the Helixes, but actual circuitry. It's not, now bear in mind that the Kemper and the Helix are actually profilers. There's a big difference between profiling and modeling. Yeah, modeling is basically what your, your pods and your line six and all of that kind of stuff is. They're trying to model uh, the best they can sound like an amp, whereas the profilers like the Kemper and the, and the Helix are taking literally like a biometric, like, kind of digital fingerprint and cloning it so it sounds exactly the same as that amp arguably there's a lot of people that don't agree but then they're kind of amp flat earthers to me anyway so but then they've come up with this model that is a one unit mount not even the size of a bible or something but basically you can take that with you tiny little unit you could put it in your wife's handbag and you go to your gig you plug it into whoever's amp you want to borrow and bang you've got a $3,000 diesel or an angle. Wow. I'm probably going to jump on one and get it just because I've got a feeling that it's going to get expensive. They're going to realize what they've done, how amazing it's going to be for fly dates and stuff. And, and I'll probably jump, yeah. I'll probably jump in and grab one, but um, you can DI these things straight into your door, you know, like uh, for recording in log logic or pro tools yeah. and stuff. And bang, there you are, you know, so it's, it. what's the price tag on it at, at NAMM? 
you can get them now. I think it's four ninety nine for the actual housing unit, and then it, every single module is three nine nine in dollars. That is so. So you're talking about less than a thousand dollars to have the one unit, and then they've got a two unit rack mount, and then they've got a three unit actual amp head if you want the look of an actual amp head. But these things they di yeah so well that the sound you know they've got basically a like a like a a, a mic simulator. So the sound that you would get if you plugged it into the amp and mic'd it in a professional studio is what you're getting by literally going straight from an XLR out the back of it straight into your door. So you're getting these stadium guitar sounds for not a lot of money and you can do it all in your headphones without having to annoy the wife. Yeah, I've got a Tubemeister 18 Hughes and Kettner that's got a red box DI out. Uh, It's just amazing. I don't use it enough, actually. I should be recording with it far more. It sounds great. But you know, it's uh, yeah such a useful thing to have. Oh man, the record the recording side of things is just advancing so so quickly. It's it's hard to keep up. Yeah, yeah. What what future projects have you got in store, and what should we be looking out from you? I've got got to put a quick uh, shout in here for uh, Taiketai playing at Stone Free at the O2. I'm definitely going to be there uh, on the. 17th. Oh, you're going to come up? Yeah, That's definitely. I saw it on your Facebook. And, uh, Dude, we're gonna be we're gonna be we're gonna be tired because we have to fly in. We're playing in Switzerland the night before, and we we uh, our lobby call to get to the airport in Switzerland is four a.m. So we're gonna be pretty drained by the time we get to the O2 to play. It's gonna be amazing playing at the O2 though. Yeah, fine. Be but wonderful. you're gonna be tired. <laughs> oh, we're okay. got right. Richie Cotson's on, isn't he? And uh, who else is on? You got some Super Tramp in Megadeth. Yes. Megadeth, yeah, on your day as well. Anathema. Scorpions. Scorpions yeah. the day before, aren't they? Megadeth's the day before as well, I think, isn't it? I won't be able to make the Saturday, but you're on, on the on the Sunday. I'm yeah. definitely gonna be there. It's gonna it's great. Oh, I'm I'm looking forward to it, man. We've got some really good I head out on Friday with Taikato. We're playing on the Monsters of Rock cruise that heads out of Miami. It's a five day cruise. Basically this company hires the cruise liner and you know, it's us and Firehouse and Winger and you know, all of those bands from that era, the late eighties, early nineties era. All on a boat together sounds really dangerous. (laughs) And and four and a half thousand drinking rock fans as well. It's it's recipe for disaster, but every year seems to work and it's it's really good fun. That's gonna be brilliant. And then we play M three festival, which is kind of like Donington back in 1988 or 1990 would have been like a one-day event in Baltimore. We're, we're playing that as well, which is a lot of the same kind of bands. And then we will be coming out and playing the festival in Switzerland and then Stone Free. Yeah. And then there's some surprise stuff that we can't mention yet that's going to be happening after that. Oh, uh, we'll keep, we will all keep listening. Oh, listen, and as far as well, I and let me, I've, got to, I've got to shout out at least the other stuff I'm going to be doing because it, I'm really trying to get down this Space Wolf stuff at the moment. It's a, I'm really hoping that we can get that out there. Uh, for those of you listening, it's more of like a stoner rock meets kind of Mastodon with some real technical guitar playing. Ryan Knight, who is the guitar player in Black Dahlia Murder, he's, um, he's playing guitar in it too. But it's in Chicago, and since I moved to Atlanta, I haven't been able to keep it going. But I'm going to get that nailed this year, and hopefully there'll be a Space Wolf album of which I'm actually singing and playing guitar. So that's something I'm really looking forward to doing. A little nervous, but I have to take my own advice and just get out there and do it. That's going to be brilliant. Yep. I'm definitely going to be watching out for that. And with with Jamie Hunt as well. We're doing that uh, technical cacophony-style twin lead guitar thing which uh, we're looking at getting started as in the summer superb it's been an absolute pleasure chris yeah and thank we're you, really Matt. grateful for you taking the time out much to appreciate come and join us at tune in tone up and uh yeah we're um we hope that it's a popular episode and uh that you get a load more people listening to your music and uh, maybe a, later on we'll do some some more stuff yeah yeah i'd like that thanks very much for having me on gary it's really uh it's good it's really good to talk about all this stuff Get people inspired. Yeah, thanks, man. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Stay tuned for more episodes, jams, improvisation ideas and well-informed thoughts about amps, pedals and guitar tone. If you enjoy this podcast, leave us a review on iTunes, find us on SoundCloud or see our website on tunein-toneup.com. Here you'll find show notes, tabs and further research and resources. It's also a good place to get in touch. 
We hope you're finding these lessons as interesting and as useful as I do, and if you have any suggestions, we'd love to hear them. Yeah.